Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so that you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Also, thanks to LegalZoom for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Whether you want to take your business to the next level or take control of your family's future with an estate plan, LegalZoom is where to start. They're not a law firm, but their network of independent attorneys can help keep you on track. For special savings, enter FOOL at checkout, LegalZoom.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. And because it's our March mailbag, I'm also joined by Ross Anderson. Hello. He is a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister sister company company of The Motley Motley Fool. In today's episode, we're going to answer your questions about trusts, pensions, using an IRA to save for a house, the backdoor Roth IRA, which I know so many of you are excited about, (laughs) uh, HOA headaches, all that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Yes, that's right. Ross is back in the studio to help us tackle some questions. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. I'm glad it hasn't been a, so miserable an experience <laughs> in the past that you say no to bro when he comes knocking on your door. Not at all. I love being here with you guys. Oh, thanks. The feeling is very mutual. All right, let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. First question comes from John. With the new tax law depressing rates for now, do you think it is time to reconsider putting more savings into Roths, HSAs? I hate saying Roths. Roths. That's a tough one. Uh, sorry, savings into Roths. HSAs and regular brokerage accounts instead of traditional tax-deferred accounts. Well, John, you bring up a good point. Thanks to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, income tax rates have dropped from levels that were already historically pretty low, depending on your tax bracket, to rates that we just haven't seen in a long time. So, yes, I think it makes total sense to look at situations now where you are giving up a tax break today, like the Roth, in order to have a tax break in the future. So, I definitely think it's worth considering the Roth these days more than you may have in previous years, because the, the tax deduction you're giving up just isn't as worth as much as it used to be. As for HSAs, or otherwise known as health savings accounts, um, I'm not so sure the new change does much for them. When you put the money in an HSA, you get the deduction, and the withdrawals are tax-free if you use it for qualified medical expenses. If you don't use the money, and you let it grow throughout the years. At age 65, you can take it out penalty-free, but you still have to pay taxes on it. So it's sort of like a traditional tax-deferred account. So I, I think HSAs are great. I just don't think the new tax law does anything for them in terms of making them more attractive or less attractive. I still think it makes sense to contribute to traditional tax-deferred accounts if you're in a higher tax bracket today, especially if you expect to be in a lower tax bracket in the future. But the trick there is really, to really make it worthwhile, you've got to invest the tax savings. So, if by contributing to, say, your traditional 401k, you're saving $3,000 on your tax bill, you should be investing that and saving it for your future. If you're just going to spend that money, you probably should just go with the Roth. Um, as for contributing to a regular brokerage account instead of a retirement account, I think the most compelling reason you would do that is if you think you might need the money before you're age 59 and a half. The only thing I would add to that is uh, to actually look at what you have in terms of deductions. So, if you are in a high tax state like California, New York, where you're paying a lot of state income taxes, you're losing that deduction uh, for the most part. And so, even though the rate that you're paying on your taxes is coming down, the amount that you have to pay in taxes may not be. Uh, so, before you shift everything from, from pre tax to Roth, I would at least look at how the 
the loss of, of deductions is going to impact you as well. All right, next question comes to us from Rob. My wife recently inherited a substantial amount of money, enough that we can retire, which is great, but I see a potential problem. We are both relatively young, I'm 50, she's 56, that money is in a trust for her benefit. I can imagine the possibility of living a nice long life of leisure until something bad happens to her. She unfortunately has a family history of health issues, but all my relatives live well past 90. So when she dies, the trust money we both have been living on goes back to her family and I'll be broke. What do I do? All right. And he had several O's there. He did. That's I didn't just do that for dramatic effect. <laughs> well, so the this is as classic of a life insurance case as I can imagine. Yeah. So anytime you're dealing with a situation where uh, one spouse's income or resources are uh, needed to support the other spouse, uh, if, if a, a death causes that hardship financially, I think that has to be a life insurance case. And so in this case, what you would want to do, uh, and you said that you guys are still pretty young, so hopefully... Uh, Health-wise, you're still insurable and and healthy and all of that good stuff. Uh, But I would get a quote for a permanent life insurance contract, like a uh, guaranteed universal life, um, something in that space, so that if the trust money itself does divert back to the family, there is something there for you. Uh, And it means that you're going to have to pay some premiums, but I think it'll be well worth it to have that peace of mind. Yeah, another situation where you'd consider this is if one spouse is receiving a pension, and that pension goes away when that person passes away, the other spouse might consider getting a life insurance policy on that person. The other thing I would add is just to make sure that you see a professional and that you really are in good enough shape to retire. One thing you're going to have to do if you both leave work is you're going to have to pay for your own health insurance which can be very expensive. You mentioned that your wife has a family history of health issues. So you're not going to be able to be eligible for Medicare until you're 65. So I want you to go into it knowing exactly how much you're going to have to pay for health insurance if you decide to retire at such a young age. All right, next question comes to us from Mark. I'm 36, and my employer offers a 401k with a 4% match. However, the investment choices are limited. They, there are a variety of T. Rowe price target retirement funds that include a mix of stocks and bonds, but they don't interest me. There is an S&P 500 index fund and an extended market index fund that do interest me. They have the lowest costs of my choices and some of the only all-stock options that I have. The other all-stock option is a foreign markets index fund, and I'm not interested in that. I'm thinking of allocating half of my contributions to each fund as opposed to just picking one. Do you think that's a wise strategy? Well, first of all, I like, Mark, that you're looking at the expenses on your funds because the evidence is clear that's one of the most consistent predictors of performance going forward. You're dismissing the target retirement fund out of hand, and that makes sense for someone to a certain degree at your age of 36 because they tend to be pretty conservative. I will say that T. Rowe Price has among some of the best. You would be looking at something like a 2050 fund, which these days is 55% U.S. stocks, 31% non-U.S. stocks, and 13% cash or bonds, cash and bonds. I think that's a pretty reasonable allocation for most people. So I don't want you to dismiss it out of hand. Moving on to your other choices, S&P 500 index fund. We all love that. That's great. Extended market is basically the total U.S. stock market minus the S&P 500. So it's a mix of small caps and mid caps. You're basically with those two funds, you're owning the entire U.S. market and giving a slightly higher weighting, actually a significantly higher weighting to the small and mid caps, which is perfectly fine. Historically, they have outperformed large caps. You're young, you have a long time, so I think that's fine. The one thing I would say is, I would consider putting some of the money in the international fund. You don't feel comfortable with it, obviously, so maybe just a little bit, 10%. I personally would be fine with someone putting 
a third of their contributions into each of those three funds. But if you're not comfortable, maybe just five or ten percent. But I think long term, having an international allocation makes sense. Yeah, I mean, most uh, economists that predict these sort of things, and we're talking about over a ten to twenty year time frame, but most of the predictions I've seen have international stocks outperforming right. U.S. stocks if we're looking yeah. for the next ten to twenty years. So you could take that with a grain of salt, but but I'm absolutely with Bro on that. Um, and and even if we look as recent as 2017, most people don't realize international stocks outperformed U.S. stocks last year significantly, S- yeah. especially emerging markets. Uh, and I think international was up 26. Yep, and emerging so, markets yeah. up 31 to 33, depending on which fund you were looking at. Yeah. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS. ConsumerAccess.org number 3030. All right, next question comes to us from Al. I remember hearing... Robert, one suggests. That's me, by the way. I'm Robert. (laughs) (laughs) You can call him Bro Al. It's cool. I remember hearing Bro one suggest that you look at a pension as a type of bond. So if I were getting $250 a month from a pension, that would be the equivalent of having a bond worth $100,000 paying 3%. In practical terms, let's say I am putting 25% of my portfolio into bonds. My total portfolio is $500,000. That means if I did not count my pension, the amount I would put into bonds would normally be $125,000. But since I have that pension of $250 a month worth $100,000, I actually only need to allocate $25,000 into bonds. Am I interpreting what you said correctly? Is my math, as my seventh grade algebra teacher, Mr. Wilson, used to say, abysmal? And I've got this all wrong. Now, interestingly enough, Bro is not going to answer this question. Ross is. (laughs) Ross chose this one, but let me just start off by saying, shame on Mr. Wilson for telling a seventh grader that his math is abysmal. As a former teacher, I feel very bad for Al. All right, Ross, take it away. <laughs> fair, fair enough. So, so I, I really love Al's question because it means that he's looking at his financial life uh, holistically versus just looking at at components of it. Um, in many ways, a pension acts a lot like a bond. You've got income. You could calculate a, a present value of what that's worth and, and factor that into your portfolio. The one thing that it doesn't do for you is give you the ability to rebalance out of it. So if you thought of, uh, for example, in your if you were going to allocate 25% to bonds and adjust that over time, so on an annual basis, kind of bring that back into tolerance, you don't have any way to really add to that pension strongly or to take money out of it. Um, and and so you can always increase the bond allocation, but you can't rebalance from your pension back into stocks. So if you end up making your stock portfolio much more aggressive. Uh, as a result of that balance, you're kind of stuck in that positioning. So, so if you're thinking about it that way, and 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 you see a downturn in the markets, you're going to feel that a lot more because you've got a heavier allocation to stocks than if you had the bond position in there as well, and you just need to be ready to ride through that. Right. Yeah. This is something. I mean, to me, it's more theoretical than getting it down to the exact dollar. It just means that you have another source of income in retirement. That is immune to what happens to interest rates, immune to what happens to the stock market. So it allows you to take more risk in your portfolio 
if you want to, if you have the risk tolerance, and as long as you have the money you need in the next few years out of the stock market. And it's not just pensions. There are some people who think you should do the same with Social Security. In fact, John Bogle is one of those people. He told Tom Gardner in an interview that you should really consider your Social Security to be about a bond holding worth $350,000, which allows you to take more risk in your portfolio. Um, not everyone agrees with this. If you if you look at the Bogleheads website, which is a bunch of people who just love Vanguard and John Bogle, they disagree with him on two things. Mm. One is John Bogle doesn't think you should have much money in international stocks, whereas most people think you should. And John Bogle thinks that you should consider your Social Security as worth something like three hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of bonds and factor that in your allocation. But as Ross points out, you can't rebalance it. It's not like if the stock market drops, you can sell some of your bonds to more buy more stocks. When they're down, you cannot sell your social security early. That's right, mm-hmm. exactly. So, it's to me, it is. It's more just theoretical, just knowing, like, okay, it's okay for you to take a little bit more risk in retirement if you have these other sources of income that you can rely on if the market tanks. To to get really granular with it, what what really should influence that allocation for you is your distribution rate out of the portfolio. And it sounds like you're you're early enough in this that you're still in savings and accumulation mode. Uh, but as you get closer and closer to re- retirement. The pension is going to reduce how much you need to take off the portfolio, and so that's how I would really think about factoring that in. Is is in the way that it, it, you don't need as much cash from the portfolio, and so you're going to let that drive your allocation of stocks and bonds. Yeah, and by the way, in terms of the math, another way to factor in how much that's worth as a bond is to calculate how much the size of an immediate annuity that you would need to create that income. So if you're getting three thousand dollars a year as a pension. That's the equivalent of basically investing about $50,000 into an annuity if you're 65 years old. That's the way I would figure the present value more than the math than you did it, although the way you did it, I think, is perfectly fine. And absolutely not abysmal. Absolutely not. Next question comes to us from Tyler. Tyler writes, I'm 27 years old and saving for a down payment for a house. The goal is to have at least enough for a 20% down payment when I'm 35 or so. Since I have a medium-term time horizon for this goal, I'm currently keeping my house fund in a taxable account invested in the Vanguard Wellington Fund in order to grow my savings better, faster, stronger than a boring savings account. Supposedly, you can withdraw up to $10,000 from an IRA to help purchase a first home. I'm already contributing to my retirement, but does it make sense to increase my contributions to my IRA accounts in order to take advantage of the tax breaks, with the thought that I would use some of the money for a down payment later? Yes. So Let me start with, uh, when you say that you are already contributing to your retirement, by the way, great job, you're 27 and doing that, that's awesome. I'm going to assume that you are contributing enough, and someone your age should be contributing about 15% of your income, and that includes the match. So, if you're contributing 10% to a 401k and your company's matching 5%, you're hitting that 15%. Now, so you're doing fine with your retirement. You're, 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 first of all, you're asking, implicitly at least, whether the Vanguard Wellington is a good place to put that money. And I actually think that's a pretty good fund. It's a balanced fund that's 65% stocks, 35% bonds. Um, it's finished in the last top 10% of its category over the last 5, 10, and 15 years. Very low cost, gold rated by Morningstar. So, I think that's a great choice for money that you're going to need in the intermediate term. So you're looking at like seven or eight years. So I think that's great. Now, as you're pointing out, though, that it is in a taxable account, and according to Morningstar, you're losing about a one or two percent of the return on that fund due to taxes. Should you instead put it in an IRA and use it for a house? I think it's worth considering because you are right. There is the first-time home purchase exception to take out money from an IRA to buy a house. The actual taxes and penalties depends on the IRA. If it's a traditional IRA, 
It's $10,000. You take the money out. It's still taxable, but you got the tax deferred growth along the way, but it's still taxable. You don't pay the 10% penalty, but you do pay taxes when you take the money out. And by the way, that's a $10,000 limit per person. So if you're married, they can take out $10,000. Also, well meaning relatives who want to help, they can also take out $10,000, but it's a lifetime limit. So if you've done it in the past, you can't do it again. The Roth gives you a lot more flexibility because when you take the money out for the Roth, the thing that comes out first are the contributions. Those are always tax and penalty free. Then, once you hit the earnings, you can take out that $10,000 without paying a penalty. And if the account has been open for five years, it's tax free as well. So, I actually think it makes sense to do that for your situation, but I would choose the Roth IRA over the traditional if you can. And by the way, the definition of a first time home purchase for the IRS is kind of ridiculous. It just means that you haven't owned a house in the previous two years. So, if you owned a house three years ago, if you owned five houses more than two or three years ago, you're considered a first time home buyer by the IRS. Next question comes to us from Amar. When I sell a stock, who is buying it? How come there's always a buyer when I want to sell? Uh, so basically, yes, somebody's buying it. Uh, you right. won't ever really know who that is, but uh, I actually looked up the smallest cap company in the S&P 500, which is News Corp, ticker's NWS. I'm not recommending it, but I just wanted to see how much it actually trades. The average uh, volume over the last 10 days, 637,000 shares a day. Wow. So there's a lot of people trading a lot of stocks. Um, it is possible that if you got into a thinly traded stock uh, or what's sometimes called a pink sheet, uh, which is an over-the-counter traded stock that is not on an exchange, that you you could have an order sit out there that doesn't get filled, either to buy or to sell. You could try and buy a stock and and not have that uh, availability there. But for anything that is really a household name or or trades on. Uh, a U.S. index. Most of the time, there's just enough buying and selling and liquidity going on uh, that that there's always somebody out there. And really, that is the supply and demand curve being expressed in real time. That if nobody's willing to buy it at today's price or the current moment's price, uh, it will continue to draft down until somebody is willing to buy it. And so that's really what you're seeing with uh, daily pr- price fluctuations. And and there's a lot of people out there. Yeah, and for the for the really big names, there are people who it's essentially their jobs. To buy stocks when someone is selling, or to do the opposite, and those are the people you see on the floor of the trading on the, the trading floors. They're specialists. It's their job to make a market in the biggest name stocks. For the as Ross said, the smaller ones, there's no one out there who's it's, that's their job. So you just got to hope you do it. But there are plenty of people out there who basically make their living buying from you and selling to another person, basically in a split second and getting a little bit. Of a commission along the way. One of one of the traders for Motley Fool Wealth Management. We have, we have three traders that implement our strategies, and one of them used to be a market maker, uh, and so he basically sat there all day watching orders come in and go out, and you know taking a tiny haircut on on those transactions. And uh, I, I chatted with him about this before the podcast, and he said there's a lot less of that going on than there used to be. I think the electronics have kind of changed it, but um, certainly fascinating how fast and, and how much of that goes on. Yeah. Well, it's funny when you watch like a movie like Trading Trading Places. Oh yeah. Right, and that's like old Wall Street where they're like right. yelling and orange juice futures and screaming. But when we went and rang the bell from the Motley Fool, I don't know what four four or five years ago, like it's just a bunch of guys standing around computers. Yep. 
Like half of them probably look like they just like drink coffee and eat sandwiches all day and don't really do that much else. It's not a lot of yelling and like waving pieces of paper in the air. A, a lot of that really exists today for the TV environment. Right. You know, they, they shoot a lot of TV on the floor of the exchange, wanting to look like it's where the action's happening, but but it's not that yeah. necessary anymore. Yeah, vast majority is it over computers and between institutions. Next question comes from Ben. Should I use government issued I savings bonds or an online savings account? For my cash, what are the pros and cons for both options? I love that someone is bringing up I bonds. You know that inflation is starting to tick up when people bring up I bonds because you haven't heard about them for years. I don't know, Allison, have you even ever heard of an I bond? Nope. Right. So, what's going on? What an I bond is actually kind of a clever little thing that you can get from Uncle Sam. It's a type of savings bond, so it's it's about the safest investment in the world. The interesting thing about the I bond is that it has two components to its savings rate. One is fixed. Through the life of the bond. Another one is a variable based on the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. So these days, with an I bond, the fixed rate is only 0.1%. But when you add the inflation thing, you get a rate of 2.58%, which is pretty good, especially compared to the typical savings account. Plus, it goes up if inflation goes up. So it gives you a little bit of inflation protection. A couple other interesting things about I bonds you don't collect the interest until you redeem the bond. That means that the interest accumulates tax-deferred, but it also means it's not a really good source of current income. Um, Speaking of taxes, they're federally taxable, but free of state taxes. And if you use it for qualified higher education expenses, you don't pay any taxes. Um, They can't be redeemed for one year, and if you redeem it before between years one to five, you'll pay a penalty equal to three months of interest. So it's not something that's really that liquid. It's not a checking account. You can't use an ATM to get access to your savings bond, and you can't write a check on it. So, for most people, it's probably better just to have a regular savings account just because it's more liquid. But if you're looking for a really safe investment for the next five or so years that will adjust for inflation, an I bond, I think, is worth considering. Uh, our listeners love to find places to squeeze more money out of their emergency fund. It doesn't sound liquid enough to put an emergency fund in, though. It's not, generally speaking, because, again, you have to hold it for at least a year. I mean, after that, you lose three months' worth of interest. It's not a big deal. Another good thing is you can get them free through Uncle Sam and a website called treasurydirect.gov. But you're right, it's not, it's not the thing for the emergency fund. But fortunately, because interest rates have gone up, it's pretty easy to find a high-yield savings account that's about 1.5% these days. All right, next question comes to us from Brandon. My employer offers three 401k options, the traditional pre-tax plan, a Roth, and an after-tax option. This after-tax option seems like the worst of both worlds. You are taxed on money going in and taxed on distributions. Is there an advantage to using this option over the others that I'm not seeing? All right. So Brandon is talking about uh, a feature that not every employer 401k has, but uh, is an interesting one. So the after-tax feature is normally used if you've already maxed out your pre-tax or your Roth contribution. Uh, so in 2018, if you were below 50 years old, you can put in $18,500. Uh, that's actually gone up. So if you were trying to max out and last year you were at 18,000, you can put an extra 500 in this year. So that's good. Uh, if you are over 50, uh, that limit goes up by another 6,000 for the catch-up, so up to 24.5 for the year. Uh, but if you are already doing that and you wanted to continue saving beyond that, you're not allowed to to do more pre-tax or Roth money into the 401k, but you can still contribute in an after-tax fashion. After-tax basically means that you are still paying income taxes on that money, 
but it's going into the 401k and it is tax deferred. So buying and selling short-term capital gains, all of that type of stuff is avoided. And when it comes out of the 401k, you're going to pay taxes, income taxes on the gains. So it's kind of like an annuity in that way. Um, if, if you had a tax deferred annuity, so after-tax money in, tax deferred growth, you pay taxes on the gains coming out. The other popular use of this is for backdoor Roth conversions. So if you put a bunch of money and and stuff money into that after-tax feature, uh, you can then do a Roth conversion on that piece. When you get to retirement and you've separated from service, so you can uh, kind of isolate that amount of your your 401k, um, and and again, it's kind of a lower cost version of doing a Roth conversion because uh, you have basis, you you have actual money that's already after tax inside the account. Um, so it gets kind of complicated. I realize that's that's tough to follow just listening to it, but that's really why the after tax feature is there. It's not intended to be the first thing that you choose, but if you're already maxing out, it could be something to consider. Now that the New Year's madness is over, it's time to work on your story for 2018, and LegalZoom can help. Finally, get serious about launching and running your own business, or square away your family's future with the right estate plan. You can do all this and more with LegalZoom. They've been helping people like you take care of their dreams and responsibilities for 16 years. LegalZoom's not a law firm, but they have the resources to keep you on the right path, including advice from their network of independent attorneys all at your fingertips. LegalZoom plugs right into your life without billing you by the hour, because at LegalZoom, all pricing is given up front. Write your 2018 story now at LegalZoom.com, promo code FOOL, and get special savings. That's LegalZoom.com, code FOOL. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. All right, our next question comes to us from Grace. Did the new tax law remove the ability to do a backdoor Roth IRA? As I understand it, you cannot recharacterize Roth contributions as a traditional IRA, but I'm not sure if you can still convert traditional IRA contributions to Roth. All right, here we go. The backdoor Roth IRA. We get a lot of questions about this. So, the complications around the Roth IRA really all start with the fact that it's subject to income limitations. For 2018, basically, the ability to contribute to a Roth IRA, begin, Roth IRA begins to phase out for singles with a modified adjusted gross income of $120,000, and it gradually fades out to where you can't contribute to a Roth IRA, and that figure starts at $189,000 for couples. Once you make that much, you can't do the Roth IRA. Now, sometimes people contribute to a Roth thinking they're fine, but then as the year goes on, they end up making more money than they thought they would. Maybe they got a bonus or a raise or something like that. What you can do is recharacterize the money you put into the Roth as a traditional IRA. The new law did not change that. So if you contribute to a Roth, realize you shouldn't have, you can recharacterize that. Now, another way to get money into a Roth is to do a conversion. So you take money that you have in a traditional IRA, you convert it to a Roth. Any of that money that is converted that is attributed to pre-tax money, in other words, contributions that you got a deduction on, and growth, that'll all be taxable to you in that year. But once you do the conversion, the money will grow tax-free for the rest of your life as long as you follow all the rules. You used to be able to change your mind on a conversion, too, and do the conversion and then recharacterize that and say, oh, you know what? I've changed my mind. That is what has changed in the new law. So, you, if you're going to do a conversion, make sure that you're absolutely sure you want to do it, and then you can pay the tax consequences of that conversion when tax time comes around. 
Now, this brings us to the backdoor Roth. What some people have, have done, and by the way, it's, you're still able to do it, the new tax law did not change this, is if you're not eligible to contribute to the Roth, what you do is contribute to a non-deductible traditional IRA. You don't get a deduction. It's all post-tax money. Put the money in that IRA and then convert it to a Roth. There should be little to no tax consequences because, again, you're putting in after-tax money and you're doing the conversion within a certain amount of time, so there's not a whole lot of growth that you'd be taxed on either. That's why it's called the backdoor Roth IRA. and It's pretty simple and it's still legal. It becomes complicated if you have other money in traditional IRAs because of something called the prorater rule. And this is kind of complicated, so pay attention, class. Here's the deal. Let's assume a person already has $20,000 in traditional IRA assets. It's all pre-tax money. It's all growth. In other words, stuff that would be taxed if it gets converted. Then this person contributes $5,000 to a non-deductible traditional IRA, bringing the total to $25,000. They put in that five thousand because they want to do the backdoor Roth. Put in five, they had twenty. Now they have twenty-five. If they do the conversion, eighty percent of that will be taxable, because twenty thousand of that twenty-five or eighty percent was pre-tax money and growth. Even if it's in a separate account, you can't just look at one account and say, "I just want to deduct this money." You have to look across all your traditional IRAs. For that reason. People who already have a lot of money in traditional IRAs, the backdoor Roth is not necessarily a good thing to do. It depends on your situation. Now, if you can take the money that you have in traditional IRAs and move it to your 401k, some people have done that. Transfer it to your 401k, and now poof, now you don't have any money in traditional IRAs. Then you do the non-deductible IRA and convert that. That's a strategy worth doing, too. But some people have done this and moved their money into a 401k that stinks. And I don't think it's worth moving money into a 401k that stinks just so you could do the Roth conversion. Um, So, everything I said is pretty complicated. You could still do it. The one thing that is debated among financial professionals about the backdoor Roth is how long you have to wait between the time you open the account and the time you do the conversion. Some people say you only have to wait a couple of months. Other people say you should wait at least a year. Basically, what they're afraid of is that the IRS is going to decide that this is a big loophole, and they're going to come after people and say, you did this to get around the law, and we're going to disallow it. So I would say, wherever you're going to open the account, call them up. They've probably already done plenty of backdoor Roths. Ask them for the steps on how to do it and how long they think you should wait and follow their directions, because it can get pretty complicated. But they've done, I'm sure, hundreds of them, and they can tell you what to do. And if that sounded, when he talked about the non-deductible IRA, like the after-tax in the 401k that I was just talking about, that's because they're taxed the same way. So, those are basically the same thing, is an after-tax IRA, or or excuse me, a a non-deductible IRA or an after-tax 401k contribution. Those are very similar. Yep. If you want to read about this, really, the, the guy who's considered the expert on IRAs, in the U.S. is a guy named Ed Slot. He has a great website. So, visit his website if you want to read up a little bit more about how to do this before you make a decision. All right. Our next question is uh, it's kind of a long one, so bear with me here. It's from John. 
About two years ago, we moved into a townhouse. We took out a five-year arm knowing we didn't want to stay there long. The HOA fees were really high, but we felt it was was still a good deal. Since buying, the HOA implemented a special assessment totaling roughly $12,000 over five years. Not happy about that. Our mortgage plus HOA and assessment fees will surpass the proper percentage of our budget. I'd like to stay in the house for as long as possible, considering it's an area that is going up in value. Plus, we will have sunk $12,000 into the community. But that time when our mortgage rate will adjust is approaching, and with rates going up, we're going to have to stomach that. Here's the question. Do we get out soon and incur the cost of moving to avoid current and future high fees, or do we stomach the high fees for the next three to five years? Any thoughts on finding cash for a down payment on our next house, and maybe this house as a rental, or is that unlikely given our financial situation now, but maybe? <laughs> I feel like John's not quite sure how he feels about his townhouse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so first of all, it's a loaded question. There's a lot lot here. So, But for the, for the folks that are listening, the first thing that I would tell you is if you are looking at a community that has a condo board or an HOA, Ask them before you buy for a reserve study. So all of these condo boards, all of these HOAs, uh, on a about a five-year basis, they should be doing what's called a reserve study, which is where they have an expert come in and look at how well capitalized is the association, what expenses do they think are coming up, and do they have enough money in the bank to cover it. So that is a huge indicator of whether or not you're going to be facing things like special assessments, like rising dues. Uh, I mean, it's very common for the dues to rise over time anyway, just because things do become more expensive, inflation, etc. But if you have a board that has been neglecting that reserve fund, they haven't been putting enough money into it because it's typically unpopular every time they do a special <laughs> assessment right so so every every time some president raises the rates on people they typically get ousted because they're like well I don't like that guy he made us pay more <laughs> it's funny how that happens uh, so so that would be my first piece of advice is that if you're going to buy uh, in in a condo or or a, a home community that has one of these make sure you see if it's well capitalized because if they're responsible for things like roofs and parking lots these are big expenses and so if that comes up you're going to be dealing with it okay now the second thing i would say uh, there's a lot of competing language in in john's question so we got in because we wanted to get out quick so we went with this short term 5 year arm which means the rate is going to adjust on him in three short years. And then he says, but we'd like to stay in the home as long as possible, or maybe even rent it out, which would mean that you're a right. long-term owner and you're going to convert this into uh, an income-producing property. So those are not really together. Get uh, your story straight, John. Right. So, so if you think that this is going to be a long-term property and that you might be able to come up with the cash for a down payment without liquidating the property, uh, I would refinance it as quickly as possible. because. Really, we're in a rising rate environment. It's our, we've already seen a, the Fed increase rates this year. They're projecting to do it a couple more times. So uh, I think that this is going to get uh, much higher on you. The other thing is, if you're going to buy a different home, you may consider accelerating that because your purchasing power decreases as rates go up. So the amount of house that you can buy elsewhere may decrease over the next three years with the same amount of payment. So it might be time to accelerate this. Um, so I think really assessing whether or not you want to be in the home long term is critical, uh, and then if you're going to treat it as an income property, you've got to lock it in and 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 start thinking long term about the asset and how you've got it leveraged. Um, 
you know, the, the assessment is, is tough. Uh, it's probably going to hurt your selling value if somebody else comes in and they realize that they're going to have this special assessment to pay, uh, or you're going to have to absorb that somehow and build it into your purchase price. Um, there's a couple creative ways that you could maybe structure that. Um, so, so I, I think it is going to hurt your, your sale value a little bit, but the, the good news is uh, maybe you spin it to, to say, well, whatever is causing that assessment has already been fixed. We've already paid for it, so it won't happen again. Um, so ho- hopefully that helps you there. Uh, in terms of finding any cash for a down payment, I think that's that's kind of impossible to to answer without knowing more about John's financial situation and just what his assets look like. So I, I can't really touch that one. But uh, think really hard about what you want to do. Do you want to be a landlord? A lot of people don't actually want to be a landlord. Yeah. The idea of income from a property sounds really attractive. The idea about getting calls in the middle of the night because a pipe burst, that sounds less fun. And right. if you're paying a management company to not deal with those things, a lot of your profit goes right out the window. It'll be a long time before you break even. All of that sort of fun stuff comes with being a landlord. So, um, I don't know if I helped John, but but those are some things I think I can I would think about if if I were in his position right now. Yeah, I would say, and, and to a certain degree, it comes down to the budget. I mean, you're right. I think you have to assume that when the arm resets, it's going to be at a higher rate. Uh, can you afford that as well as this assessment, whatever the HOA fees are? And if you can't, then it's time to sell and do something else. But if you can, and you love the place, just Suck it up and <laughs> enjoy it. But uh, I, I picture like the scene. Uh, I think it was the Austin Powers two, where it was like the slow moving car that was going to run over the guy, and he and he like sees it coming from really far away, but right. just doesn't move. So you're kind of in that spot right now, John. <laughs> it's coming after you. You've got three years. Don't wait until it's right on top of you before you make a decision because you're going to lose options. Yep. All right, and our last question today comes from Joseph. Do IRA deposits have to be made in cash, or could I transfer the equities from my individual brokerage account into my Roth IRA without selling anything? Uh, sorry, no. You do have to make the contribution in cash. Uh, the interesting thing is, though, that the money that comes out does not have to be cash. So, for people in the situation that this most applies to, people who are subject to required minimum distributions, and that's not people who have Roth IRAs, but people who have traditional IRAs. You required minimum distributions. You don't need the cash. What people often do is they sell the stocks in their account, take the cash, and then they buy the stocks again on the other side. You don't have to do that. You can actually take the distribution as stocks. You just have to call up your broker to ask how to do that. But unfortunately, when it comes to putting money in the account, it's got to be cash. All right, let's uh, cover some listener feedback. Let's do that. All right, so Bill heard our episode where we talked about selling stuff on Craigslist, and he suggested the websites safetradestations.com and safedeal.zone for finding safe places to make business deals. Um, So, if you're going to sell a crib and you want to meet the person in a safe place, um, there are apparently police stations around the country where they'll let you make the trade in their lobby. Really? Yeah. Don't wow. sell the crib at your crib. <laughs> hey. And if it's a stolen crib, <laughs> just kidding. We also got a listener from uh, named Greg from Australia. He heard our episode that had Scott Phillips on, and uh, he said, Whilst talking of IRAs leaves me scratching my head, the more general advice is always much appreciated, and I can assure you that you have loyal listeners outside the U.S. Aw. He said, Can I suggest looking at Australia's superannuation system as an example of good regular saving for retirement? All employees must put 9.25% of savings into an approved fund. To my mind, this is having a huge positive long-term effect for both individuals and the broader economy. And we do say, good eye. 
all the time. <laughs> uh, so thanks, Greg, and thanks for listening. All right, so a few people uh, heard our chat about the downfall of Theranos. And Lou on Twitter saw similarities with Elon Musk and Tesla, mm. saying that. Mm, <laughs> saying, as, a, as a Tesla stock owner. Saying that. Oh, are you a Tesla stock yeah. owner? Yeah, he's saying that tech journalists are gaga, while the auto journalists are super skeptical. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. Phil saw similarities with. Have you heard of Danielle Fong? She's the yeah. former chief scientist of Lightsail Energy. So she was a wunderkind. She attended university at 12 and then uh, was getting her PhD at Princeton at 17. And I think she dropped out and headed to Northern California, where she insisted that her technology to store surplus wind energy really worked. And $80 million in investments later from people like Bill Gates and Peter Thiel, it turned out not to be true. Oh, um, one article I read about the demise of this company um, on greentechmedia.com had the subhead of a fish rots from the head down. Oh, nice. <laughs> so if you enjoyed the Theranos uh, storyline, maybe Google light sale energy for some fun reading. Uh, so that's it. Uh, I want to thank Ross for again joining us on yet another, I would say, successful mailbag episode. Very successful. Not the, a single fail. Along there were the questions. Way. We answered those questions. Yeah, feels like a win. Feels, feels like, a, like win. a win. I'm gonna put that in the W <laughs> column. Uh, all right, the show is edited officially by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com for Robert Bocamp and Ross Anderson. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.